836, Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us, WTMJ. A couple quick programming notes before we get into the show. Today, 910, your final chance this week to win in our Follow the Brewers contest, approximately 910. If you are the correct caller, you will win a pair of uh, a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Cardinals later this month at Miller Park, and you will be entered in our weekly drawing. Uh, later on this morning, we will take all the daily winners. We will randomly select one, and that winner, we're going to allow them to follow the Brewers. We're going to send them to Pittsburgh for to see a game in Pittsburgh. Um, that's coming up, I think, um, what's the date? Early May is when the, the Pittsburgh date is, but we we will still be qualifying one more winner today, so be listening approximately nine ten for your chance to win, and then we'll have a weekly grand prize winner. We do this courtesy of our friends at Noodles & Company and West Bend, the silver lining. Appreciate that. All right, um, number two, tickets continue to be on sale for Insight 2017. It's about 12 days away. It is Wednesday, April 19th at the Country Springs Hotel. I was in a meeting yesterday. It's, it's, it's going to be a really, really cool event. And I encourage you to, to get your tickets and come out and see it. Um, we're going to have Governor Scott Walker, Joe Bartolotta of the Bartolotta Restaurant Empire, three justices from the state Supreme Court, Attorney General Brad Schimmel, and we're going to be talking to him about the, the huge opioid problem. So um, if you've got high school kids or you've got grade school kids that are going to high school, yeah, that, that in and of itself is worth the price of admission to hear um, Brad Schimmel talk about some of the things they're doing and the nature of the problem. We're also going to be joined by um, Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarran to talk Packers and a little bit of backstory on both those guys. And, of course, Bob Babish and Don Smiley from Summerfest to talk about Summerfest memories and Summerfest moving forward. That's Insight 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel on Wednesday, April 19th. Tickets on sale now. Just go to WTMJ.com, click on the icon, and we hope to see you there. All right. Big thing number one, we start off the program today like we do every day. Three big things I think you need to know about to discuss during the day. And today, it's an easy choice. Um, Last night, the news reports break that uh, President Trump had ordered a missile strike on a Syrian air base. Now, let's let's kind of review the bidding, and then we're going to open up the phone lines and, and discuss this. Syria has been a bad actor in the world for a number of years. The Syrian president, and I use those terms in quotation marks, he's really a dictator. His name is Bashar al-Assad of Syria. And he it's it's really more of a regime than a government. Syria has been involved in a long-term civil war. The Bashad regime, uh, the Assad regime against these various rebels that have, uh, and it's been going on for years. I mean, there are estimates that hundreds of thousands of Syrians have lost their lives. It is a major human rights crisis. In an effort to, to stay in power, Assad has been willing to do pretty much anything, including using chemical weapons. Chemical weapons have essentially been outlawed since World War One, I. I mean, there, there's and I, I understand that some people say, well, what's the difference between dropping bombs and chemical weapons? Well, chemical weapons have essentially been outlawed because of just the, the incredible the, the nature and the horror of the chemical weapons. Assad of Syria has a stash of chemical weapons, and there's lots of intelligence that says he continues to produce chemical weapons, and he has been willing to use them in the past. A few years back. 
Barack Obama famously came out and said, we're going to draw a line in the sand, and Syria better not cross it. And that was with regard to use of chemical weapons. Well, Assad crossed it. And there were no consequences from the Obama administration. What happened was John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State, sat down and talked with Russia. Now, why would they talk with Russia? Well, the Assad regime in Syria is essentially being propped up by Russia and Iran. And if you say, well, why doesn't the U.N. do anything? Well, it's largely because Russia and Iran to a lesser extent, but more like Russia, pretty much blocks any sort of action in the U.N. The U.N. is powerless and refuses to do anything about this. So after the last use of chemical weapons, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, sits down with the the Russian ambassador, and they, they work out this deal where Assad agrees that he will destroy his chemical weapons. Well, like, I think most of the people realize that that was not worth the paper it's written on. And, of course, Assad did not destroy his chemical weapons. And the story later, earlier this week, was, of course, he used these chemical weapons to attack a village in northern Syria, which was which is a rebel stronghold. So you've got, it's a civil war, you've got the Assad regime, you've got the rebels, and so he drops chemical weapons on this town that is, again, a a rebel stronghold. And the estimates are, and you've probably seen the news footage, the estimates are somewhere between 80 and 100 innocent men, women, and lots of children are killed in this chemical war, this chemical warfare attack. Now, the Assad regime says, no, we, we didn't do it, that the rebels did this themselves. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Um, it, it's, it's very apparent, you know, what had happened here, that Assad had, in fact, done this. Now, the matters are a little bit complicated because Syria is, like I say, it's a regime. And Syria is a hotbed because there's, there's real there's no government in the sense that we think of of a government and there's no there, there's there, it's it's very very lawless and so what's been happening is Syria which is a very big country Syria is an area where ISIS or ISIL whatever you want to call them the terrorist groups I mean they set up shop and and that's where a number of their bases are they operate out of Syria and they operate well, it's not fair to say that they have the blessing of Assad because I think he's afraid that they might throw in with the rebels, but they pretty much all operate with impunity. So you have U.S. There's, there, there's a handful, a relative handful of U.S. special forces people that are on the ground. They're working with the rebels in the battle to identify and prosecute ISIS, the, the terrorists that are there, and they operate there with at least the tacit permission of the Assad government. So that that's the background, and that's the complicating thing now, because if you take military action uh, against Syria, what is Assad going to do? Is he going to use whatever military he has, and is he going to turn it against the U.S.? That That's the complicating factor. So anyhow, we talked about this on the program yesterday, the question being, you know, what do you do? Obama had drawn a line in the sand and then pretty much not followed through when Assad crossed it. Earlier this week, you have the chemical attack. And last night, uh, President Trump, with at the suggestion of the, the, the Pentagon, this was a plan that they had devised a long time ago, ordered an attack on an air base from which they believe the chemical attack came from. The attack was 
very, very targeted, 59 Tomahawk missiles. Interestingly, they didn't try to blow up runways because they say that runways can be easily replaced. But what they did is they went after, like, munitions sources that were at the airport. They went after control towers and radar. They they went after petroleum supplies. But they dropped 59 cruise missile uh, Tomahawk missiles on the um, airport because there are Russians – like Russian soldiers that are co-housed with the Syrians. My understanding is they gave, the U.S. gave advance notice to the Russians that this was coming. So the Russians had a chance to evacuate, and presumably they told the Syrians, and so the Syrians had a chance to evacuate. So this was done with an effort at trying to, to the extent possible, avoid the loss of human life. They, they gave notice that this was coming because they didn't want to kill a bunch of Russians, and they, I don't think they wanted to kill a bunch of Syrians either. So they said, okay, this is when this is going to start. You have a chance to evacuate. I haven't seen the full casualty list. I have no doubt that probably some people were injured or maybe a couple people lost their lives. I haven't seen reliable reports on that yet. But They gave notice, the U.S. gave notice, in an attempt to minimize this. Now, you might ask, why didn't they go after, if the problem is chemical weapons, why didn't they go after the chemical weapons facilities that they believe that Assad has? And the problem with that, the way I understand it, is if you bomb, like, one of these these chemical plants that's producing the stuff that might be used in the the different, the, the chemical things, What happens is it's an unintended consequence. By blowing up the plant, you could set off clouds or plumes of deadly chemical gas yourself in these areas. And so you could end up poisoning a whole bunch of people by bombing the plant. So this is what they did. It was a surgical strike. It was directed at the military air base designed to take out planes and control towers and radar and petroleum and munitions, all in an effort to... Number one, discourage Assad from ever doing this again. And number two, um, after several years of civil war, the the Syrian um, army is very much degraded. And so the, the thought was, hey, you know, th- this can really help us hurt his air force to try to reduce the ability of him to do this. All right. With that background, 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Did Donald Trump go too far? Was this an act of war? Was this an irrational, knee-jerk reaction to an incident? Does the U.S. have no business getting involved? The argument being, what do we care if in a civil war you've got, you know, Assad that decides to use chemical weapons on his own people? Should, should we care? Is it a matter for the U.S. to get involved with? Or was this a reasonable, measured response to a horrific, barbaric action. Did President Trump do the right thing? I've got a theory. We will discuss it, but what do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 847. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. Okay, a little bit of long explanation, but I think it's important to have context. Did President Trump do the right thing yesterday? Let's start with David and Mequon. David, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, I think he did a correct thing, and I'll tell you why. It's you know, it's been going on for years there yep. in Syria. And we uh, supposedly back in 2013, as a reminder, back when President Obama was president, uh, you know, he supposedly uh, laid claim, and John Kerry laid claim that all the weapons of right. mass destruction had been turned over 
and the Russians were were the ones that were actually helping secure this. Right, right, well, right, obvi- right. Yeah, obviously, that's a complete lie. And two, um, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, when you have something like this, does the world take a blind eye while you know people get gassed to death? Well, let me ask you the question. There, there would be some people who would say President Trump ran on an America first. You know, we're not the world's policemen. You know, he a couple of years ago, I mean, issued, sent out various tweets saying, hey, we shouldn't get involved in Syria. It's a mess. Um, I mean, wh- why do we care? Um, why should we care if in this civil war you've got this dictator who's gassing his own people? Mm-hmm. Well, in this case, you know, I think the world has to realize there, there has to be some sort of stabilization. The fact that you can't just have dictators, you know, have this comfortable feeling they can just do whatever they want to do. Yeah. And and you see what's happened is that when you allow dictators, and keep in mind, we made a deal with Iran. Iran is partners with Syria. Right. And and now you know that the fact that you know. Supposedly, these chemical weapons were disposed of when actually they weren't. Right. Um, now, see, I, that leads I, you to believe that Iran, um, you know, could do something very similar right. or heinous. See, uh, I, I agree with you, David. I mean, I, I, I mean, thanks. For, I mean, I agree with you. I think. No, look, I, I think the long-term solution, and I talked about this yesterday, is to exert financial pressure on Russia and Iran to get them to pull their backing from Assad, in which case his government will crumble. But, but this particular response, I think it was measured. I think it was appropriate. Do, do I think we should be sending thousands of troops into Syria due to regime building? No. But this was, it was a targeted strike. My understanding is, I'm reading the reports, this military air base from which the chemical weapons were, the attacks were launched, has now been pretty much destroyed. You know, um, so it was a measured response. We gave notice. Now, you might say, why do you give notice? Well, they wanted to make sure that there were, there was as little chance as possible that there was going to be a large-scale life of, a loss of human life. So they say to the Russians who are based there, get out. This is coming. And presumably, again, the Russians tell the Syrians. I think this was a measured and appropriate response. And one of the things that we have learned, at least in my opinion, over the last eight years is you had Barack Obama, who's Barack Obama, who who talked tough, but who was never willing to follow up his actions, the tough talk. And the effect of that was to enable, I think, a lot of these dictators. Well, there is a new sheriff in town, Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. What do you think? Hey, I agree with you 100%. I think this was a perfect strike. It was limited the loss of life, and uh, it sent a clear message. It sent a message not only to Assad, but to the rest of the world that, you know, if you're going to break the law and you're going you're gonna to violate human rights to such a degree as they did with gassing their own people, that somebody's going to stand up to you. Somebody's right. You're, if you're violating up. treaties and that, I mean, you, you know, the list of what Assad did by doing this, you know, the list of how many treaties he violated and things, it's just, it, it is incredible. So yeah, if the United Nations won't get involved, if the United Nations is going to be toothless, Trump is saying, hey, I'm going to take a measured response. And I have no problem. And I think it was very smart not to to notify the Russians and let them know that, that this is going to happen. So we limited that loss of life. Right. And even, even the Syrian army, most of those people, I'm sure, are not, you know, they're gassing their own people. I'm sure a lot of those guys are just 
conscripts, the people that were brought into the military, you know, yeah. kill a bunch of these guys. I mean, is it? Right. And, and that wasn't the purpose. Right. The, the purpose was to degrade. OK, it, it was to degrade the the ability of him to do it again. It wasn't to kill people. It was let's try to take out airplanes. Let's try to take out, you know, the, the control towers. Let's try to take out the radar. And, and yes, they haven't completely destroyed the Air Force, but that wasn't what the mission was. Right. I think and, this was, it was de- quick. Yeah. And it was designed to send this message that, you know, knock this off. And I, I mean, in a perfect world, candidly, Mike, I think that, you know, they, they would have gone after the, the facilities because they apparently know where they are, where he's producing these, these chemical weapons. But again, the problem is if you bomb those, then you've got all these collateral effects of what's going to happen. Do you release the gas into the general population? Do you you know create your own human rights issue? And, and they didn't want to do that. I actually, this is one where I think they got it completely right. Right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. It is 856, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And interestingly enough, now, I, I do, I think the president was within his authority to do what he did. If you were going to be talking about an escalation, a boots on the ground, or a major escalation of military involvement in Syria, I think it would be wise and perhaps required legally to consult with Congress. But I don't get the sense that that's what they're doing. And you know what? I, I think Russia... Russia, they're, they're complaining about this now, but I don't think they're going to do anything. I think they realize that Assad went too far, and there'll be a bit of saber rattling. But my guess is a week or two from now, a lot of this, at least between Russia and Iran and U.S., I, I think a lot of this will probably be water under the bridge. It's 857. Um, just to, to follow up, our, our text line just absolutely exploded with thoughts on whether or not this was an act of war, whether or not it was an overreaction by President Trump to send uh, 59 Tomahawk missiles and, and pretty much destroy the, this airbase. Interestingly enough, showing no sense of irony at all. The, the Russian statement is, well, this is an act of, of aggression against the sovereign state. That is, of course, highly ironic, coming from Vladimir Putin, giving all, given all the military action that Russia has taken under Putin over the last few years. My prediction is um, this was a surgical, singular type of action. It was measured in its response. And my guess is actually Iran and Russia are probably a little bit relieved that it was not more widespread and definitely designed to send a message. Long term, though, I think that the answer in Syria is Assad has to to go and it's got to come through again economic pressure that the United States and other countries can wield against both Iran and Russia because if they withdraw their backing from Assad the Assad regime crumbles um here's some thoughts from our text line though after WW2 we became the world police the power we gained after the war propelled us to that position i thought trump was wrong for saying that we should not be um kate in walworth says it was a fair response it's about time somebody stands up to the syrian punk trump proved that he won't sit on his heels when little babies are being murdered. Um, Chris writes, this was a reasonable response to what happened in Syria. The world is looking to America, and we have not led in the last eight years. A message needs to be sent to Iraq, Russia, China, that we mean business. We also need to show support to our allies in the region, namely Israel and Jordan. How about showing the Syrian people that there are somebody that cares? Um, Then, of course, while some people might say this was an overreaction, uh, another one of our texters writes, the airstrikes did not go far enough. Lots of planes and bunkers were left untouched. Russia flew a drone over after lots of targets were still viable. Yeah, well, that's why this this was not intended. This was not intended to destroy the entire Syrian military. This was intended to send a message saying, do not continue to do this. The treaties say no chemical weapons. If you continue to do this, 
there will be escalating type of action. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are other airplanes. I'm sure there are other air bases and things like that. This wasn't intended to take everything out, but it was intended to say that there is a new sheriff in town. And this president, when there are crimes against humanity, is going to do more than simply talk about how appalled he is. Okay, we have today's winner in our Follow the Brewers contest. It is Susan from Milwaukee. She automatically wins a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Cardinals later on this month at Miller Park. And she has entered into our drawing. It's going to be held today from our various daily winners. One of those daily winners um, gets to go to Pittsburgh for the May 6th game. Uh, Keep listening. Like I say, we're going to be running this for the next several weeks, courtesy of our friends at West Bend, the Silver Lining, and Noodles & Company for your chance to follow the Brewers. In just a minute or two, big thing number two, Neil Gorsuch is going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. The nuclear option was invoked, and the sun came up today. Stick around. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Now that the nuclear option has been invoked and Neil Gorsuch is due to become the next Supreme Court justice, what will the political fallout be of this ordeal? Scafidi and Billstat share analysis and get your reaction today at 107. My take comes up right now. It's big thing number two. Uh, I see in the promo we use the word ordeal. I don't know. I, I don't think it's been such an ordeal. I mean, there's all this gnashing of teeth, and you had trees that were killed to produce news to produce the newspaper. But at the end of the day, I mean, yesterday the Republicans decided to do away with the ability to block the nomination of a Supreme Court justice. And you know what? The, the sun came up today. I, I I don't know about you. My life does not feel any different at all. The reality of this is is that the, the, the wheels for this were set in motion back in 2013 when, when Harry Reid decided that for all other nominees, we were going to do away with the ability of the minority to block, to block the nominees. And so that was the real nuclear option. That's when the Senate's ability to have a minority, you know, 41 votes, block progress. Um, that's that's when that really happened. It goes back then, and this was just the logical extension of it. And my guess is that this, for all practical purposes, moving forward will mean that the tyranny of the minority, the ability of the minority, whether it is Republicans or Democrats who are in the minority, the ability of a minority to block legislation pushed by the majority as chosen by the electorate, it's going to be gone. I mean, I think this is probably just the the forerunner of now doing away with the ability to filibuster all other legislative attempts. And as I argued yesterday, you know, I think it's about time. I mean, I, I really, honest to goodness, do. Elections have consequences. You know, the American voters choose. Sometimes, in my opinion, they make dumb choices, but American voters make choices. They say, hey, these are the people we want in power. These are the policies we want. And the idea that a minority, in this case in the U.S. Senate, 41 votes, can stop, can thwart the will of the majority as expressed through the electorate on everything from a Supreme Court justice to legislation, I think is at best antiquated. Maybe this had maybe this had some purpose I don't know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I I don't know. But it doesn't, to me, have any purpose now, especially since, and again, I'm not going to be political with this, but because things have been become so polarized, 
the objections, for example, to Neil Gorsuch going on to the Supreme Court, the, the, the objections weren't that this guy isn't qualified. It wasn't that this is a, a non-mainstream type of judge. The objections were simply, he's an appointee of Donald Trump. And the special interest groups that give the left money say, we don't want you to go along with anything Trump does. And if you don't do anything, everything you possibly can to obstruct the process, we're going to find people to run against you in Democratic primaries and we're going to to fund them. So this isn't Tammy Baldwin has no principled objection to Neil Gorsuch. Tammy Baldwin is just falling in lockstep with Democratic liberal leadership and saying, I'm going to be an obstructionist. It's not. Again, a filibuster has never been used to try to thwart a Supreme Court nominee before, but now that is precisely you know what has happened. So the Republicans were faced with this choice. Do we essentially allow the Democrats to get away with this? Do we essentially end up in a situation where there is a we, we allow things to be blocked and we go for four years without you know having a vacancy filled in the Supreme Court? Or do we, you know, or do we move forward? And so big thing number two, the Republicans, after much gnashing of teeth, do do invoke the nuclear option. Neil Gorsuch will be confirmed sometime today as the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. And you know what? The sun has come up. It is not the end of the world, and doing away with the filibuster once and for all will not be the end of the world and might just lay the groundwork for good public policy. So that's big thing number two. Big thing number three is coming up in just a minute. It's 921. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, the passing of a legend. It's 923. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. You listen to them every Sunday afternoon and on Wednesday night, April 19th, you get a rare chance to see them together live in person. Packers Radio Network team of Wayne Larravee and Larry McCarran sit down with me during Insight 2017. Don't miss this rare opportunity for some green and gold insight direct from the broadcast booth. Tickets are on sale now, so don't hesitate to head to WTMJ.com today to get yours. They are incredibly reasonable price. Just seeing Wayne and Larry together is worth the price of admission, but you also get to see the governor, the attorney general talking about you know opioid abuse, Bob Babish and Don Smiley from Summerfest, three justices of the state Supreme Court, Joe Bartolotta, and lots more. So again, don't hesitate. Head to WTMJ.com today. Get your tickets to Insight 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee. It is on April 19th. We are monitoring. I mean, the other big story that is now just developing, besides the airstrikes in, in Syria last night, the other story is this truck attack in Stockholm that so far, I think they've announced it's killed three three people. But again, this is early reports that it might be more. The um, Apparently, the prime minister over there is saying that they believe that this is a terrorist attack. It is early um, as far as reporting goes. We're going to be picking up the ABC News feed in just about five or six minutes. So we will bring you the latest on what went on in Stockholm, as well as, again, tying it into the story we're going to be following all day, that the fallout from the, the Tomahawk missile attack on the airbase in Syria as a result of uh, the Syrian strongman's use of chemical weapons against his own people. All right, big story number three. And it's, um, well, it, it comes from the world of entertainment. Don Rickles. And if you, maybe, you know, maybe if you're under the age of 30, 
you, you don't, okay, I, I've heard of Don Rickles, you know, maybe I've seen him in a couple of these old movies, or I saw CPO Sharky, or I, I was watching the Beach Blanket Bingo movie, and that was that Don Rickles guy. Um, Don Rickles passed away at the age of, of 90. If you are under a certain age, maybe you don't understand how how significant Don Rickles was, and what a what a force he was in the entertainment world. Don Rickles who really came to fame in the late 50s and early 60s, was really the first of the the insult comics. Um, you know, the, the ones who, you know, made fun of people, particularly like celebrities and things like that, um, you know, made fun of them. It was kind of that, that insult thing. And now, of course, you have lots of celebrities who do that, kind of that sort of attack, lots of comedians, that sort of attack comedy that's out there. But interestingly, Rickles was able to do it. And even though sometimes the the humor was like biting and things like that, he he was beloved. And and most of the celebrities, for example, that he he did that to, you you the word was you really knew you'd made it when Don Rickles decided to to pick on you. And uh, you know Don Rickles again, he was on TV and movies, but uh, you saw him on the Tonight Show over a hundred appearances on the Tonight Show back when the Tonight Show was something when it was hosted by Johnny Carson, and and he just became absolutely legendary and continued working. I mean, I mean, he was he was doing shows on the road. He was at Potawatomi not that long ago, really. Did a show. I saw him a couple of years ago at Potawatomi because it was one of those things where I had never seen Don Rickles in person. And actually, a, a couple friends of mine said, "Well, we, we should probably do this because you just you know at the time I think he was like eighty seven or eighty eight. You just you just never know." And we went and saw the show. And candidly. I think he was doing the same show in 2015 that he probably was in 1975. And, you know, a lot of the humor seemed kind of dated and and a lot of the stuff, a lot of the sort of the jokes that he, he made, even though kind of well-intentioned, you, you wouldn't be able to do that kind of stuff today. It's sort of like, like the movie Blazing Saddles by Mel Brooks. Can you imagine, you know, Blazing Saddles being made in today's environment? It just wouldn't be done. But with Rickles, even though it was kind of dated, it was still, it was fun to see the guy um, who was such a legend. And it's one of those people that I know lots of lots of us who, who grew up were just kind of uh, amused we saw him on the tonight show we saw him in all these different things and and we just we kind of grew up he made us laugh and at the end of the day if you can you know take a few minutes and you can figure out a way to to make people laugh that that's always a good thing and that is precisely you know what Don Rickles did and he was the classic definition of a working comedian my guess is that after his passing now you're going to see a lot of his old movies are going to resurface. Um, you're also going to see there's a couple specials that they put out about Don Rickles. And my, I would encourage you. There's, um, there, there was a a film called uh, Mr. Warmth, the Don Rickles Project in 2008 that was done by John Landis. Um, there, there's a number of documentaries that are out there. What I would do is I would encourage you if you get a chance to watch them, especially if you're really not familiar with his work, do it because. It, it'll make you laugh. And part of it is, like, I acknowledge, it is a time capsule type of thing because you, you look at some of the jokes. If you ever see them on, they, they show the old Dean Martin roasts, and you'll go, wow, um, I can't believe he said that. Or, But but it was a different type of time, and, and people just really enjoyed him. Don Rickles was just an amazing talent, and um, he will certainly be missed. And if you have a chance to revisit his work, I encourage you to do it. Big thing number three, the passing of Mr. Warmth, Don Rickles.
135. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Do state Democrats have a plan to unseat Governor Walker next fall? Former state representative and longtime Milwaukee area lawmaker Mandela Barnes weighs in on the debate. He joins Scafidi and Bill Stat today at 207. Be sure and tune in. All right. Um, ever since Donald Trump was elected president and Republicans retained control of the House and Senate, you've had a lot of people that are angry on the left. And the way some of those people who are angry have decided to act out and it's like, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to protest and we are going to take over town halls that Republican representatives are having, you know, where they go and meet with their constituents. And we're going to flood these town halls with, with people and we're going to try to, again, disrupt these and confront the people. Now, Jim Sensenbrenner locally Uh, actually kind of thrives on this. He has a number of town halls, and he's followed around by a number of people, many of whom aren't even from his district. And these are people who show up, and they've got their list of talking points, and they decide that they want to shout and scream, and they want to do everything they can to disrupt. And it's the same people who show up over and over and over again. Now, guys like Sensenbrenner thrive on this. You know, and he, he'll, he'll bring them in and he'll let them talk, and then, you know, he'll, he'll just kind of move on. It's not going to change his principles or whatever. Other people, other politicians decide, well, you know, okay, there, there's other ways around this. And, you know, I, I don't, I want to use these town halls as a way to interact, you know, with the broader constituency, not just deal with a handful of loudmouths who are going to show up and try to disrupt these events. Ron Johnson in the well, he was just reelected to a second six year term. You know, in the six plus years that he's been in the U.S. Senate, he has had dozens and dozens and dozens of town halls. But in the wake of what has been going on lately, he's been conducting town halls, but he's been doing them telephonically. So the idea is you can control, you know, you, you can't have a bunch of people that just storm in and decide to take it over to try to get their faces on the TV news and to promote whatever weird agenda they have. So this has been upsetting them. In addition, Like some politicians and some personalities, um, what happens is you attract stalkers, and that's the term I'm I'm going to use. There's a guy who apparently has been calling Johnson's office um, multiple times a day since the Donald Trump inauguration. On one day, for example, he called 83 times. Now, my definition of God's way of telling you that you need to get a life is if you can call a politician 83 times in one day, but the guy is just, he, he's, I, I, want, I want to talk about this or that or the other. So what, what apparently, it, it, was, it was tying up phone lines and it was distracting Johnson's people from doing work of, of dealing with like real constituents and dealing with real issues. You've got the one crazy guy who, and I say crazy in quotation marks, the one determined guy, whatever you want to do, who's calling and calling and calling and calling and calling. And apparently, um, you know, uh, Johnson's office sent the guy a letter notifying him that the police would be notified if he called or visited the office um, again. All right. So that's that's kind of the background. So he starts complaining. So what happens is between the telephonic town halls and the telling the guy who calls 83 times in one day to knock it off, this has gotten the attention of this, well, this group, I I guess, who they call themselves um, Cards Against Humanity. And so what they've done is they've tried to organize this thing where for $5 a piece, they will send potatoes 
to Ron Johnson's office. And the potatoes apparently say, hold hold a town hall or whatever. And there, there's been a few of them that have been delivered in the last couple of days. And apparently there's like a truckload or something that's supposed to be delivered on, on Monday. I was listening to our morning news broadcast, and they had the guy who's the, the co-creator of this Cards Against Humanity. His name is Max Temkin. And he was on. And I, I just I, I was listening to this guy and the motivation for what he is trying to accomplish in this effort against Ron Johnson. And here's a portion of the news broadcast. You know, we're a pretty disinterested party in this, right? We, we're based in Chicago. We're not Wisconsin voters. But we saw this crazy news story uh, that came across uh, our desk that uh, Senator Johnson's office had actually sent a cease and desist letter to a constituent of his who had called his office um, some number of times asking him to hold a town hall meeting. And for me, just just not as like a Wisconsin voter or anything, just as an American, it just it just something about that just upset me so much. It just felt so cruel. It's like you know, it's like not as a partisan issue even, but it's like this guy's job as a U.S. senator, like really his one job is just to listen to people. Like even if they're angry, just let people yell at you. Like that doesn't that doesn't hurt anyone. Just let them be mad at you and say what they believe about health care. And he just wouldn't even give people the dignity of listening to them. That's his whole job. I bet we could be a lot more annoying than this guy who called his office a few times. And uh, we started thinking about like what's something that's sort of like cheap, but heavy, but really inconvenient that we could just send a million of them to his office and uh, send the message that, that just just to, for the sake of simply doing his job, he should hold a town hall and hear from people. Honestly, I hope that it's incredibly annoying for him and his staff that receiving thousands of potatoes from people all over the country. I hope that it drives them insane, and I hope that every moment of their day is consumed by uh, annoyance and inconvenience dealing with these potatoes as they continue to not do the simple job of listening to their constituents. Just listen to people. Just let them yell at you. I mean, that's the whole job. Okay, the, the guy in question is apparently the, the motivating factor. Like I said, he called 83 times in one day. Oh, they're not. John Johnson isn't listening to, to, to his constituents. He called 83 times in one day. But beyond that, what struck me about this guy's comments and, and Cards Against Humanity is this, this cards game. I, 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 I thought where the character says, we are trying to be as inconvenient as possible. We hope this is disruptive. We hope this causes them inconvenience and as much hardship as possible. We're going to try to disrupt the operations of Senator Johnson's office. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. I am sure Ron Johnson's office is going to be able to handle this perfectly fine. But, But... I'm listening to this, and i got to tell you, I'm thinking, what an arrogant punk. This idea that, here, we're going to try to do everything we can to make it as hard as possible on the staff of Senator Johnson. Gee, all right, there's all sorts of big issues that they've got to deal with, or maybe even legitimate constituents' issues. I mean, people who have real problems that they need the senator to like deal with, but we're going to try to send as many potatoes as we possibly can to make their days absolutely miserable, to make it living hell for them, so... I don't know what. So they listened to the guy who called them 83 times, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm sure guys like this character think that they're really being clever. To me, 
This is nothing more than being a punk. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 943. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 946, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, if you're just tuning in. Um, Ron Johnson holds town hall, Senator Johnson, but lately, in order to avoid the disruptions, the plan, the organized efforts to disrupt these things, he's been doing them telephonically. He's got a guy who, in my opinion, when you call somebody's office 83 times in one day, that kind of qualifies you as a stalker. So he's got this one guy who's been calling in. One day he calls 83 times a day. They send him, uh, and he's been calling multiple times every day. They send him a letter saying, knock it off, or, you know, we're going to refer you to the authorities. So now you have this game creator of Cards Against Humanity who does this interview. Oh, we're just appalled by this. He's not doing his job. He's not listening. He's not responding to his constituent. 83 calls in a given day. So they've organized this protest where they're going to send potatoes to Johnson's office. All right, that, that's fine. But what really set me off is this punk, this Max Temkin, the guy who is the creator of the protest, says, I hope, I hope this makes the day, I hope this makes Ron Johnson's staff miserable. I hope the inconvenience and the agony, I hope this puts them through, you know, you know what, I want to make their day as difficult as possible and as disruptive as possible. And I'm thinking, what a punk. I mean, seriously, what a punk. What about, God, let's say, let's say you've got a dispute with the Social Security Administration, and, and you're, you're a legitimate constituent. This guy's out of Chicago, by the way. You're a legitimate constituent. You're trying to work with the people in Ron Johnson's office to get your Social Security or your disability thing or whatever. You know, you're trying to have the senator work with you to cut through red tape. And you've got punks like this that are saying, well, we want to stand up for the guy that called 83 times demanding, you know, a, a town hall. All right. And, and they're proud of this. Let's start with Andy in Pewaukee. Andy, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um you're preaching to the choir. I'm with you 100% on this one. I do think I, I speak as a guy who I've worked in service and I work in security, so I gotta let people say what they want to say. But if people are being over the top like that, 83 calls or they're cursing and swearing, you, they you have to put your foot down and say that behavior is inappropriate. Right. So I believe. Well, right. And the idea that and then the idea that, okay, as a protest, you know, we're going to now do something that we hope disrupts the senator's office. We wanted to take away time from serving legitimate constituent needs. How damn arrogant can you be with something like that? With you on that one, I mean, here's the thing. So I work a public and private sector job as a public servant, just like Ron Johnson. I think just because you serve the public... You don't give up your right as a person to do your job. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think I'm with. Right. And, and, and just and the customer isn't always right. I mean, I I understand the guy want. OK, the guy, you know, has got an issue about the Affordable Care Act or whatever. And by the way, Ron Johnson holds town halls. He's just been doing them electronically. Now, that that takes away the photo op from some of the crazy lefties. But. But again, so you've got that issue. But then the response, we're going to try to do something we can to disrupt his office. So, all right, 72-year-old lady has got an issue with Social Security disability. All right, this card's against humanity. They want to disrupt Ron Johnson's office to stop their work, his employees, from being able to help you, help him help you. All right, what a great idea. Let's talk to Rob in West Dallas. Rob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. How are you today? Yeah, this irritates me. I'm well, though. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I would be irritated, too, and I, 
I have a different little twist on it, but it, it maybe hasn't been thought about. And I, sure. I'm with you 100%, but Ron Johnson, in wanting to donate these potatoes, and I listened to the voice of this gentleman when he's talking on the radio, and he, right. he, he wants to do whatever, and I, he wants to donate these potatoes. And I think he just, I don't even think he can donate those potatoes because it opens it up to a crackpot. Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the point that you were the point that you were making was that you you when you donate, when you donate these these potatoes, the question becomes. I mean, you you don't know where they came from. I mean, that that's the other thing. I mean, he says he wants to disrupt. He says he wants to um, again use the use the. We want to be disruptive, and so when you end up sending in, for example, the, these different potatoes that are there, you don't know where they came from. I mean, that's the concern. It's foodstuffs. Can you be in a situation where you go out and you then just make the decision that, hey, I'm, I'm going to give these to a food bank or something? Well, you don't necessarily know where they came from. Now, maybe there's been some procedures like that that have been put in place. Our text line has exploded. Um, let's see. Jeff Tosa writes, he probably wants attention and is trying to promote himself in liberal entertainment. Otherwise, I don't buy that. I don't buy it that he's a game designer. Feels free to be a moral authority on politics. Um, I hope Senator Johnson and his staff donate the potatoes to a soup kitchen and make something productive out of it. That's um, Jody in Green Bay. Yeah, I'm just not sure how you can. I'm not sure how you can do that. That's kind of the uh, issue um, without making sure that it's safe. Another text, I would do a return to sender. Lori writes, can you post this guy online? I would love to share his lunacy. Um, Dan uh, writes, hey, send the potatoes to the goof from Cards Against Humanity. Uh, Yeah, that's the issue. Lisa on Wind Lake writes, I wish I had the time um, to call the Cards for Humanity guy 83 times today, tomorrow, and Monday. Yeah, can you imagine that entire thing? I mean, again, who has the time? Who has the time to sit down and call Ron Johnson 83 times in one day and then get upset when they send you a letter saying, hey, you got to knock this off because you are tying up, you are occupying our staff from doing legitimate things? In any event, um, I know the potatoes will probably come. I'm sure that, that Senator Johnson's office will handle this. But I guess I do kind of object to, oh, we think this is this fun and it's this harmless stunt. And then I listen to this character and you can just almost see him foaming at the mouth going, I, I want to just disrupt. I, I want to disrupt. I want to cause all the inconvenience I possibly can to the senator staff. Well, isn't that nice? What does that really mean? And you explain, like I say to the, the widow and her two kids who's trying to work through Social Security red tape with the help of the senator to try to get their Social Security pay, disability payments or survivor benefits after the lady's husband died. Yeah, you've done a really good thing. You've disrupted the senator's office. Congratulations, jerk. It's 956. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. He is at the forefront of Wisconsin's opioid epidemic. And he's on the right side of the issue. And on Wednesday night, April 19th, you get a chance to gain insight on the battle he's waging across the state. Attorney General Brad Schimmel is going to join me at the Country Springs Hotel as part of Insight 2017. Look, this opioid epidemic is a topic that's close to home for many. We've had just an absolute explosion of, of heroin in our communities over the course of the last couple of years, when I was chasing drug dealers, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s, we did not see heroin. We had cocaine, we had crack cocaine, you had methamphetamine. You didn't see heroin. Heroin has made a major resurgence in this state and in this country. It is in part fueled by our fascination with prescription drugs. What happens a lot of times is kids 
get into mom and dad's medicine cabinet, start taking the prescription pills out of there, end up getting hooked. Then when they can't get the pills, they turn to heroin, which is a lot cheaper alternative. And then because there's no quality controls, you know, you have people dying right and left. It is a scary problem. Brad inside, Brad Schimmel, like I say, has been on the forefront of this, and, and we're going to have a conversation about it. As a matter of fact, the, the day of, of Insight, he's – um. He's coming back from a national conference in Atlanta, and he's going to come right over to the Country Springs Hotel to talk about this. This is a night that you're not going to want to miss. Tickets are available now online at WTMJ.com. Insight 2017, Wednesday, April 19th. Go online, WTMJ.com. And on the front page, you'll see this big icon. Click on it. Get your tickets today. It's going to be um, it's going to be quite an, an interesting uh, night, and I hope to see a lot of people there. Our text line exploding on this cards to, versus humanity. Let's send potatoes to Ron Johnson's office and try to disrupt him. Um, John says, "What's this guy's number? How about launching a phone campaign against him?" Yeah, Aaron says, "Hey Jeff, I can find a few extra bucks. Let's send him some potatoes." And I expect he should not complain and just sit there and take it, as this guy from Chicago has put himself in the middle of our state politics. See, turnabout would be fair play here. Um, yeah, I've got the Chicago address of the uh, Cards Against Humanity. We'll uh, maybe post that over the weekend. But yeah, it's this idea that, oh, Ron Johnson's not being responsive. I'm, I mean, my gosh, you know, he, he's not... He's not answering constituent calls. You've got a guy that called him 83 times in one day, and they're telling him, stop contacting our office. Well, my guess is any legitimate business, if you had somebody that called you 83 times in one day, not to mention multiple times every day since the inauguration, January, whatever that was, there'd be a point in time where you'd be saying, you know what, we've got some legitimate work to do. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, the Ozaki County District Attorney ends up dropping charges in a criminal case against a Cedarburg teacher. We're going to talk about that. And then what do we do with the freeway, freeway rebuild? That is all coming up. It's 959. Jeff Wagner. 620 WTMJ. It's 10.08. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. When you go to WTMJ.com to purchase your tickets to Insight 2017, be sure to check out our, our mobile app section. That's the podcast. And I know lots of people have been downloading the podcast. You can download a podcast of this show. Take me with you anytime. You can time shift if you want to go out for a walk after work and uh, listen to the program. We, we have that available. Matter of fact, I was getting a number of think con- comments on our text line saying, hey, that last section, you were talking about the, the jerk that wanted to like disrupt the office of Ron Johnson. You know, can we get a copy of that? Well, yeah, it, it's all up. It's all up on the podcast. People can, in fact, listen to that, and we post them every day. You'll also, in addition to the shows that you hear on the air here at WTMJ, you'll have a chance to listen to some podcasts from some voices that uh, you, you don't hear on a regular basis. Um, lots of interesting stuff. I encourage you to check that out along with, uh, again, purchase your Insight tickets as well. All right. This is a story that has gotten a lot of attention over the last day or two. And in fairness, I like the district attorney up in Ozaki County. All right. Um, actually, the former district attorney I always used to say, I thought that would be, if I ever wanted to get back into law enforcement or get back to the practice of law, I think being the district attorney in Ozaki County would be a great job. You're, you're busy, but it's not like Milwaukee that's kind of a meat grinder where – you know, every Monday you walk in and then there's been, you know, two dozen shootings and you've got the loony judges to deal with. Ozaki County, I think actually the court system works pretty well. There's there's enough stuff to keep you busy, but it's not, again, this it's just it's a different sort of environment. That being said, the district attorney in Ozaki County screwed up 
big time, uh, apparently. Uh, two days ago, with a lot of fanfare, there was an announcement that a Cedarburg High School teacher was arrested Wednesday in connection with an alleged inappropriate relationship with a former student. Now, I did, so f- let me work through this with you. The relationship allegedly occurred during the last school year, the 2015-2016 school year, and the student graduated from the district in June. Uh, the district says there's no evidence that any other students were involved, nor that any inappropriate acts occurred on school grounds or during school-related events. District officials were notified of the allegations Monday. The teacher was placed on indefinite leave of absence Tuesday. The allegations remain under investigation by the Cedarburg police. Okay, so as, if, I, if I piece this together, what apparently authorities think happened was that sometime during the last school year, not the current school year, a teacher at Cedarburg High School had a sexual relationship with a student um, while while the person was while the the child was a student, and they issued charges against them. Well, um, yesterday, or actually hours after the charges were filed in the first place, the district attorney said said never mind. The charges were dropped, and the reason they were dropped yesterday was the district attorney this is what he says he said the basic reason that i issue charges is that i was focused on whether she was a student and the effect of the fact that she had been gra- through graduation so he said when i was looking at the statute i was focusing on the fact that you know what what is the impact of the fact that she had graduated does that change anything if there was a relationship um, but now she's graduated and I presumably he concluded that that did not. But then he goes on to say, element four of the jury instruction says the victim for this particular charge had to be at least 16 years old, because if it's under 16, it would be statutory rape. That wasn't this charge and had not attained the age of 18. The statement says the incident happened over a year ago. She was a senior who was 18. So despite any opinion on the wrongfulness of the behavior, he can't be convicted of violating the statute. I made a mistake in charging that and had to correct it. So what the DA is saying is that under the law, because even though she was a student and even though the teacher had a sexual relationship, I had a allegedly allegedly, had a a sexual relationship with the student. The student was over 18 at the time. Even though she was still a student, she was over 18. So the district attorney says, under all these facts and circumstances, I don't think it is a crime against Wisconsin law. Because even though she – and he said, I I made a mistake. I was focusing on the fact that was she a student? What's the impact of the fact that she's now graduated? I wasn't paying attention to what her her age was at the time of this. But – he concludes that because she is 18 at the time this relationship occurred, and for the sake of argument, I mean, I'm assuming that this is a, a quote-unquote consensual relationship. So you've got a teacher, and you've got a student who is 18 years old, still a student, but nevertheless um, you know, having a relationship. So the DA says, I don't think that this, under the law, that this is, is a crime, so I'm dropping charges. 
um, Cedarburg school system says there's no evidence of any other students involved, and there's no evidence that any inappropriate conduct occurred on school property. So again, for the sake of argument and our discussion, I am assuming that what they believe allegedly happened was that yet a teacher had a some sort of sexual relationship with a student who was over the age of 18, but it did not occur on school grounds or during school time. So the DA says, okay, there's no basis for criminal charges because she was 18. I missed that. I wrongfully allowed the charges. I'm now withdrawing them. I don't think that there was a crime committed. All right. Apart from the fact of whether or not there is a crime committed, um, Cedarburg has now said the school system has now said that the teacher has been placed on an indefinite leave of absence this week after allegations of an inappropriate relationship with a student were brought to the attention of school officials. Even if we assume that there is no crime committed because the girl was 18 when the contact occurred, here's what I want to discuss with you. From the perspective of the school system, should this guy be teaching again? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Because there's, there's a difference between what's right, you know, what's appropriate in a workplace, and whether or not it constitutes criminal behavior. If it is, in fact, true that you have a teacher at a high school who is having a relationship, a sexual relationship with a student, I don't care whether that student is 15 or 16 or 17 or 18. Maybe it makes a difference as to whether you issue criminal charges. But from the perspective of whether or not the person should ever be back in the classroom, I think it's a no-brainer. And if this is in fact true, I don't care if she was 18. I don't care if she subsequently graduated. I don't think this guy should be teaching again. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1016. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And if you had if you had a child in a school system where this type of thing had occurred, crime or not, how would you feel if that teacher continued to be in that school system? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1016. 1019, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The NFL announced they will stream their Thursday night football package on Amazon. The only catch is you have to have Amazon Prime. What does that mean for Packers fans? Greg Matzik explains this evening. Sports Central at 607. All right. The district attorney up in Ozaki County says, hey, I, I charged this teacher who I believe there's evidence to suggest had uh, a sexual relationship with a student. Oops, my bad, though. Um, even though the student had graduated she was 18 at the time, and under the law, I don't think this statute applies, so I've got to drop the charges. All right, that's the law. That's the criminal matter. He has been, my understanding is, suspended from his duties. Regardless of whether or not this was technically a crime, should he be back Should he be back teaching again if it is in fact true that he had a sexual relationship with a student Um, Even if it didn't occur on school grounds, even if it didn't occur on school time, even if she was 18, should he be back in the classroom? And how would you feel if, I don't know, this was your school district and there was a teacher who had done that? Let's start with Wayne in Milwaukee. Wayne, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. 
oh, he should not come back. You're there to teach the kids and teach them the right way. You're not there to sexually enjoy them. That He's got bad morals, and he should not be in a classroom ever again. Well, you know, I, no, thanks for calling. I mean, I guess I, I look at this. First of all, first of all, one of the reasons you have statutes like this, and, and candidly, if this is in case the law, and I, I took a look at the statute myself, and I guess I'm I, I'm not going to argue with the Ozaki County District Attorney one way or the other. It, it might be a loophole. First of all, I don't think, candidly, being 18 should necessarily make any difference. I, to me, I think the operative fact as to whether this should be a crime is whether or not the kid was a student because of the relative difference in power between the teacher and the student. So... I, I honestly don't believe that the fact that she re- reached the age of majority should make a difference. Now, I'm not, again, arguing with his interpretation of the law. It might be that this is just a loophole in the law. But I, I agree with you, Wayne. I mean, I, the, the, the idea that you have a teacher, and again, I'm assuming these allegations are correct. It might be that this is all false, I, and that I always appreciate that. But assuming for the sake of argument that you have somebody who is a teacher who is involved sexually with a student, regardless of that student's age, while they are still a student, yeah, you should not be back in the classroom, period. I I agree. That is just, to me, got to be one of the holy grails of no-nos. If you decide, all right, once, once she graduates, that that's fine if you decide that you're in love or in lust or whatever that's a different story but while they are in school if you are engaging in inappropriate if you are engaging in co- sexual contact with a student i think that demonstrates that there's something wrong with you and that you are unfit to be a teacher and period case closed whether it's a crime let's talk to crystal in fond du Lac. crystal good morning you're at 620 wtmj good morning I absolutely agree he should not be back in school. I have a 17-year-old daughter, and if he can't keep his boundaries in order, right. that's that's an issue. Right, and it doesn't make any difference. Let's say for the sake of argument, Crystal, your daughter... Your daughter, your daughter turns. Let's say she would have turned eighteen in February. Okay, but she's still in high school. She, she's right. a senior. My niece. Okay, I'm, here's one of the reasons I'm related to this. My niece is a senior in high school. She turned eighteen in January. Okay, if I if I heard that one of her teachers was you know going after her and you know she was involved in some sort of physical relations, I'd want to strangle the guy. I don't care the fact Absolutely. that she's eighteen. She's a student for God's sake Absolutely. at the school. Right. Outraged. Yeah, I mean, thanks. I mean, right, again, and whether, like I say, to me, this whole thing, I think that this this might sound like to me to be a loophole. Now, maybe maybe you, some people would argue, well, once she's reached the age of majority, it shouldn't matter uh, from a criminal perspective if she's a student or not. I don't know that I necessarily buy that because, like I say, there's such a disparity in power between the teacher and the student type of thing. And I think as a general rule, we don't want our teachers preying on their students, their high school students, and the, the fact that the high school student, you know, turns 18 before they start having the contact, to me, that's a distinction, you know, without a difference. But, you know, whether it's a crime or not, I don't care. But, I mean, if this, in fact, happened, this guy shouldn't be anywhere near a classroom. Clint in Bayview. Clint, you're on 620 WTMJ. Morning, Jeff. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, should not be anywhere near any high school. Um, and I personally think that charges could apply here because I do not believe for one second 
that this teacher, if this happened, he waited until she was 18 to start the whole grooming process. I think this is completely predatory. I believe that if this is true, he started you know, preying on her before she was 18. It's got to count for something. Yeah, I guess the thing is, though, I mean, I mean, thanks. I mean, the problem is under the statute, it's not it. it, it, The statute is the contact. So if if it's it's when the contact occurred, I mean, again, I I don't know. You would think, you know, you would think that, well, I I don't know. Today's times are a little bit different. But, you know, modern courtship, I mean, the whole idea, the whole idea of courtship is you're right. Normally that there's a a lead up time. You just don't automatically say, hey, let's let's jump into bed the first time. I I don't know that. But regardless, the way at least I read the statute is it, it doesn't focus on. You know, it, it doesn't focus on, you know, when you might have started talking or the grooming process. It focuses on, you know, when acts might have occurred. And again, the sense I'm getting is that the acts occurred after she was 18. But, you know, big picture, who cares? I, I mean, you know, really, who cares? Jeff and Tosa sends us a text. He should lose his DPI license and never teach again. Male teachers typically take certain precautions to avoid any false conceptions of improprieties nowadays, um, like never being alone in a room with a female student. Um, the guy should be gone if he, in fact, did this. Uh, Justin writes, well, if the relationship occurred while she was a student, it's wrong and the teacher um, should be fired. Um, if they didn't hook up until after graduation, that might be different. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I do. If if that is, in fact, the case. Now, again, that's not the way I read the district attorney's statement. Um, I, the way I read the district attorney's statement is this occurred during the school year, but after she turned 18. If, in fact, she had graduated, um, that would be, I think, a completely different story, even though then if I was the school board, I would be looking at what was the lead up to this? Did she suddenly graduate and then did this out of the clear blue? Or was this like an ongoing romantic relationship that they just waited to do it till after she got after she got out? But if if the facts are that she was still a student when this happened, I think the guy's got to be gone, period. 10, 20, and regardless, it's an embarrassment to Cedarburg High. There, there, there's, no way you can, there's no way you can color this in anything other than an embarrassment to the high school. And, I mean, I appreciate it. It's a very, very good high school up there. I know some of the people that teach there. I'm sure this is one that's got a lot of people just shaking their heads, and deservedly so. 1027, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, Miyazaki now reporting that uh, the teacher claimed he had been in contact with the student before the alleged incident, but denied having a sexual relationship during the school year. Student in question told police that she first had a had sexual intercourse with him two days after graduation, but she was still involved in school activities following graduation, so Cedarburg High School still considered her to be a student. Yeah, that's not the, um, I, again, whether she was technically a well, I mean, it. I don't care. That to me does not does not change the fact that he should not. It, it it might be a legal question, and again, the big legal issue, according to the district attorney, was the fact that she had turned eighteen, and so it was therefore consensual. Doesn't matter. I think to in these particular circumstances, um, you know, if she was still involved in school activities, uh, I. This guy should not be in the classroom, at least in my opinion.
It's 1034, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Brewers continue their season-opening homestand this evening as they welcome the world champion Chicago Cubs to Miller Park. Bob Uecker, Mr. Baseball, and Jeff Levering have coverage as the rivalry rivalry is renewed. Our pregame programming begins at 635. It is sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. All right, if you decide, by the way, my longtime producer, Hondo, today is his birthday. So if you call up, be sure to say, happy birthday, Hondo. I, I tell you, you've been... Um, You've been working for me so long. You had hair when I, when you started working for me. <laughs> I think that's that's I think that that's that's been the effect. But uh, it is Hondo's birthday, so a very happy birthday, and I appreciate he actually even brought in donuts. See, I've always thought this tradition should be when it when it's your birthday, people should bring in donuts for for you. But but you you brought in donuts for for everybody and were kind enough to give me the the first choice, Jeff. I've got donuts before everybody else knows. Here you get that's that's uh, that's why I love working with you. So if you call up, be sure to say hi to um, Hondo. Okay, here is and happy birthday to Hondo. Here here is the deal: if you want to steal, my advice there, there's two things. First of all, I, I would tell you don't do it. But if you decide that you are going to steal, number one, you want to steal big. Number two. You want to use a pen, not a water pistol. And number three, you want to find yourself in front of federal judge Lynn Edelman because you put all those things together and the the chances are, well, maybe you're not going to be held that accountable. What, What brings this up is you perhaps will remember the story of Sue Sachiva, who was the the executive at, at the Cost Corporation, you know, they make the great headphones and stuff. And you will remember that this story that, that broke about how, how she, who uh, again had this, you know, huge job, um, at, at the company was able to steal $34 million from the company. $34 million from the company. Now, I remember when this story broke not that long ago, which is going to tie me into the larger point here. I, I mean, I remember thinking, how can you spend that that much money? But she used it for this lavish lifestyle, limousine rides, fancy vacations, shop, shopping sprees during which she bought expensive shoes, designer clothes, antiques and jewelry. Much of it was never unpacked or worn. I mean, when, when this the whole thing broke, I mean, they just found like aisle after aisle of like clothes and shoes and stuff that she had purchased. She stole thirty four million dollars. Now, one of the fair questions was. How can you steal $34 million and not get caught doing this? I mean, I have to, I have to laugh. If, if I have a parking receipt for something here, if I have a parking receipt, you would be amazed at the hoops that we have to jump through to get reimbursed for the parking receipts. And you know what? I don't mind because that's they have these internal checks and balances and they want to the company wants to make sure that employees aren't ripping them off. If I put in, a talent voucher for like a personal appearance or something. There, there's there's all these multiple layers that the thing has to go through, and you know you're talking about maybe a couple hundred bucks. But but that's fine. It I understand that you have these internal controls which are in place to make sure that nobody is able to rip off the company. It is a fair criticism of costs that. Somebody was able to steal $34 million. Now, Koss is a big company, but you would think that 
when it comes to $34 million, you would notice that all of a sudden, hey, wait a second, you know, there, there's $34 million missing. But in any event, that's that's what happened, $34 million. Um, most of this, the way I am able to deter, discern this, has not been paid back. Costs ended up um, you know, filing a couple lawsuits or complaints. Apparently, they collected a settlement of $8.5 million from the company's former auditor that missed the fact that this woman had stolen $34 million, and they got another $3 million from American Express because she often used a corporate credit card to finance her spending. And I think the argument was somebody at American Express should have like alerted somebody to why is she charging all this stuff? Um, you know, why, why is she charging all these clothes and stuff to her corporate account? So but it appears that they've gotten like 11 million or so of the 34 million back from other third parties, which still leaves them out $23 million. Now I bring this story up because when she first appeared in front of Lynn Edelman, he sentenced her to 11 years which I thought was incredibly low at the time, uh, 11, 11 years. I mean, she stole $34 million. The reality of this is if you had some inner-city kid that walked into a 7-Eleven and stuck a water pistol in somebody's face, that, that person would have probably gotten 15 to 20 years to take $20 out of the till. This was this systematic fraud. She got $34 million. And again, you can, you can put fault there. You can say costs. Somebody should have caught this and recognized it happened, but they didn't. That doesn't justify this woman stealing all this money. So she got an 11-year sentence. Okay, I, I thought that was light at the time, but all right, maybe you disagree. Well, here's the dazzling detail. She is now being released from prison. She, she's out. Now, you might say, Jeff, wait a second. I, I remember that story. It doesn't seem like it was 11 years ago. And the answer is, it wasn't 11 years ago. She has now been released after serving six years in prison. Well, actually, not six years in prison, because she's apparently spent the past year in a halfway house in, in, in Oakland, California, which means you're free to go out and do what you want. You just kind of come back at, at night. Um, she was able to knock five years off her sentence for good behavior, and apparently... Um, she was able to win an additional 25% reduction by helping authorities prosecute two of her former buddies who stole some jewelry and other items that she had bought with cost funds. She does six years for stealing $34 million. Cost is still out, by my count, somewhere in the neighborhood of $23 million, not even including interest. So here, here's my favorite part of the story reporting this. Um, oh, and in addition, might be a little bit less because authorities collected a few million dollars by off, auctioning off um, merchandise that she bought with the money that she had stolen. So, okay, let, I don't think they raised $5 million, but let's give her an extra $5 million. So still, she's out after six years, still owes I don't know, however much the restitution is, 15, 20 million, whatever that number would be. Um, my favorite part of the story is, as, as an ex-convict, she remains liable for the restitution owed. To collect, the government could set up a payment plan with her and target her wages, tax refunds, and other assets if she doesn't make payments. Still, um, there, there's not 
that much there. Apparently, I, I mean, my guess is they'll probably set up some payment plan or something like that where, um, oh, the judge ordered that she pay at least $500 a month towards the restitution that has been ordered. Okay, let us say she owes $20 million. The restitution order is $500 a month. 500 times 12, okay, so that would be $6,000 a year. $6,000 a year goes into 15 or $20 million. I I'm going to go out on a limb here and say she ain't going to live long enough to pay that back. It's Again, it's one of these frustrating sort of things, and this is part of the overall system. We treat white-collar crime so much differently. And I'm look, I, I'm not saying— that the kid that walks into the 7-Eleven and sticks a water pistol that looks like a gun in somebody's face and takes 100 bucks out of the till doesn't deserve to be treated seriously. What I am saying is if you steal $34 million with a pen six years and out with the knowledge that, oh, you're going to have to pay restitution, good luck with that, that's where I think the problem is. But this is what happens. This is the way we treat white-collar criminals. All right, coming up, in, coming up next, if we build it, Will the drivers come? Stick around. 1043, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1047. How do you get the likes of Paul McCartney and Rolling Stones to play on your stage? What's the key to convincing some of the most famous musical acts in history to come to your city and perform? We pull the curtain back on the secrets of Summerfest. We will. When Don Smiley and Bob Babish together... Join me for Insight 2017 on Wednesday night, April 19th. You don't want to miss this rare sit-down with two of entertainment's heaviest hitters. Tickets are available now online at WTMJ.com. During the break, our, our auditor walked by, and I, I remember before before she was the auditor, what we the, the guy who was the auditor, we used to call him Vicious Bill. Because uh, whenever we had whenever we had like governments, you know, government entities that said we can't find any money to cut. The budget has been cut to the bare bones. I said, give it to Vicious Bill, because I guarantee you Vicious Bill could find the cut. I was just as I was walking, Alyssa, watch by I walk by. I am confident that there's nobody here, nobody here at the station that would be able to get away with. I don't know, stealing $340, much less $34 million under her watch. I'm just so, I mean, I appreciate that the fact that this woman was able to do all this does reflect on some like sloppy bookkeeping and things like that. But still, I mean, you serve six years in prison after you serve 30, steal $34 million and have that lifestyle. Wow. All right. Big controversy. There, there's this ongoing debate. And at Insight, we might talk a little bit about this with the governor, about, like, freeways. And there's this, we've talked about this before, huge argument about how do we pay for road expansion? Do we need to raise the gas tax? Do we need to consider raising the registration fees, toll boats, all those type of things? That's not the discussion I want to have this morning. One of the projects that has been on the table for quite a while now is expanding I-94 east and west between the Marquette Interchange and the Zoo Interchange. We're doing all this work on the Zoo Interchange, and that is one of the most traveled areas of the freeway system. It is also an area that is controversial. You've got a number of the anti-freeway zealots who live along that route who don't 
they, they don't oh we, we you know we don't want more traffic we don't want the lanes why we don't want you adding lanes to that you're going to have to take away some space and, and we don't want you know we don't want the added noise that's going to come with it and then you just have the you know we don't like cars people and there's a lot of them out there you know we this is if you if you build lanes on the added lanes on the freeways that will encourage more people to drive and heaven forbid we don't want to do that we want to get people out of their cars and make them take buses so that that portion that stretch again between the Marquette Interchange and out to essentially like around State Fair, that has been very, very contentious. There's been either a lawsuit filed or threatened, I think maybe filed, but temporarily the, the governor in his budget has said, okay, I'm going to put this work on this stretch of the freeway on hold because this is subject to all this litigation. We've got limited funds, and what I want to do is I want to concentrate on some of the other stuff. I want to finish the zoo interchange work. I want to finish the expansion of the freeway from, like, Racine County down to um, the Illinois border. So those aren't subject to litigation or things like that. Let's get those done first, and let's not worry about this stretch right now. That was the governor's thinking. Well, a couple days ago, uh, a consortium of, of business leaders, um, Miller Coors, Palermo's, Marquette University, together with a number of other businesses that are around that area, sent, sent a letter saying, uh, wait a second, you know, we, we want you, they sent a letter to the legislators, bud, legislature's budget committee saying, wait, we think the governor is wrong here, and we, we don't want this to be halted. They say the section has nearly 200,000 jobs in the two miles around it, and that it doesn't make any sense. What you're doing, if you don't go ahead and do this work, you are creating a, a bottleneck. I mean, you do the market interchange work, you, zoo, you do the zoo interchange work, but then if you don't do what you need to do in that stretch between the Marquette and the zoo, you've just created this massive bottleneck. It would be kind of like, oh, if the MMSD were saying, okay, we have this we have this huge problem with, with water flow. We have water coming at, go, backing up into basements. So what we're going to do is we're going to repair a three-mile stretch of pipe between you know, Whitefish Bay and Shorewood, and then we're going to stretch a another three-mile stretch of pipe. We're going to widen that between Milwaukee and Shorewood, but we're going to leave the old narrow pipes in you know, for three or four miles between this. It doesn't make any sense. You're going to have bottlenecks. You're going to have backups. So they're arguing this is the problem that you're going to have. It doesn't make any sense to stall this particular freeway expansion. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I understand why Governor Walker was doing what he did. He's a limited amount of money. Let's concentrate on the non-controversial aspects. So I understand that. But, you know, these business leaders have a point. Not going ahead as quickly as possible with expanding I-94 between the Marquette Interchange and the Zoo Interchange, to me, doesn't make any sense. It needs to be done. And why allow more traffic to come into the market interchange? Why allow more traffic to come into the zoo interchange if then when you're trying to get that travel between Marquette and the zoo, you can't you, you can't do it in an efficient fashion because you don't have the freeway capacity. Should we go ahead and work on fighting the environmentalists, fighting the anti-freeway zealots, and just get this project done? 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know, I think I agree with that. I don't think this should be taken off the table. You're going to have to fight this battle someday. Why not just go ahead and get it out of the way? 1053, we talk about it next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner.
1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. West Bend is, of course, one of our sponsors for Insight 2017, April 19th at the Country Springs Hotel. Tickets on sale now at our website, WTMJ.com. Dave in West Dallas. Dave, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was listening to your comments about the freeway. Right. Your plumbing analogy was great. <laughs> uh, and the, the thing to think here, that particular bottleneck that prevents you from getting A to B, that has to be priority number one ASAP. Do it now. Well, I mean, right, it, and I understand it's going to be a fight, and I understand, I think the governor's well-intentioned with that, but it, it it's... That's a that's just a flat out mess, and anybody oh. that has to drive that at rush hour on a regular basis, or when it rains, or Lord forbid if there's an accident along there, you know, you take what should be a twenty minute commute from downtown out to Pewaukee, and it, it turns out to be you know forty five minutes or an hour on a regular basis. A couple things to consider here. First of all, that bottleneck. If you're going to do the project, you need to do the whole thing. Number right. one. Number two. While you're waiting on doing that, that drives up the cost of everything because right. people could be more increased travel times and expenses yeah. getting around and through it. And number three, the longer you wait, the price is not going to go down. Right. Well, no, you're, and thanks. No, you're right. And that, I mean, one of the reasons the Department of Transportation budget has been so darn out of whack is the whole idea that we, because, you know, we, we haven't. We haven't allowed to. We haven't adjusted for the cost of, of time. So okay, this is how, how much the pro, the project's going to cost without recognizing the project's going to be years and years in the making, and that you're going to pay interest fees. Let's talk to Dave in Brookfield. Dave, good morning. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Why does the governor want to bust his head against the wall, fighting for this project when the mayor and every left wing yeah. tree hugger on the planet? <laughs> And the county board are just going to bash him relentlessly. Yeah. It's a lot easier to give people what they want when they want it and take a win. I, I, until the mayor comes around and says, I need this done. Well, and this mayor's never going to do this. This mayor wants to force people out of cars and make us ride trolleys. That's what he so, wants to do. So Chris Abley wants to force us out of cars and make us ride buses. That, that's so, not them. They get to ride around in chauffeur-driven cars, but they want the rest of us to have to have to use public transit. That's their goal, yes. So don't criticize the governor. Criticize the mayor. Well, I guess, I mean, the, the bottom line, though, is, I mean, Scott Walker, look, I'm a huge fan. Walker's a friend of mine. I, and I understand that's why I started this off by saying I understand why this was kind of the course of least resistance. Because you're right, you're going to get, you've got the anti-car and the anti-freeway zealots, and you've got the Barretts and you've got the Abley's of the world who are going to be lined up against this. But at the same time, Governor Walker has made a career by doing the right thing. I mean, by doing the right thing. I understand the motivation behind taking this off the table. But as a matter of public policy, if you want to have this area grow, irrespective of what Trolley Tom Barrett thinks, or let's jack up the wheel tax to help pay for the bus system Chris Abley thinks, all the same time while we're tearing up roads to put in high-speed bus lines. I mean, the the truth is, this ends up needing to get done. And I think I I agree with the business community. Is it going to be a fight? Yes. But it's going to be a fight that's going to have to be waged at some point in time. It's 1059, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1109, Jeff Wagner. So, Jane. Yes, Jeff. Will you do me a favor? (laughs) Wait. When you go find your hard hat, I, you, you think there's a way we can figure out how to wear our headphones over these hard hats? Probably under a hard We could probably I, do them under a hard it, hat. It's, um, I, I, 
I, I talked to Scafidi. I, I said, is this going out over the air? And he said, well, I, I'm, I'm not hearing anything, which is which is good. That's pretty remarkable, actually. <laughs> right, because for, for people who do not know, they're, they're apparently they're, they're doing work on our air conditioning system. And for some reason, we've decided to do it while we're, we're on the air. And it's it's above us, immediately above us. And, well, how would you describe this? Because it, I am prone to exaggerate from time to time. So how would you describe it, Jane? I would say if there were several sumo wrestlers that lived <laughs> above your house and they were dropping, like, metal things on the floor in between tussling, <laughs> that's kind of what it sounds like. It is. I Honestly, there was one point in time a couple minutes ago when I, I – see, I, I'm old enough to remember – did you ever remember the things where, like, they, they'd have the, the drills at school where, you know, that for, like, the nuclear attacks and they'd, like, take you down to the basement and you'd have to, like, cover underneath, you know? Now, see, right, the duck and cover. <laughs> now, even back then, even when I was a kid, I, I was I was the the, the smart butt kid because I remember honestly God this is true third grade they take you down you know into the wood shop and you like get under the the tables and I remember saying if there's a nuclear attack is this really going to make any difference that I'm under the, this table you were that kid. I, I was that kid <laughs> and the teachers would just look at you hey, shut up Jeff oh, you know but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking okay if the bomb really falls is this going to make any difference but I, I've actually there was a, a minute ago when all that stuff fell I'm thinking huh. I wouldn't be surprised if some guy comes right through this ceiling here and lands on you or me or whatever. I was well, ready to duck and cover. Because it's a little disconcerting because we have a dropped ceiling, so we just have those tiles, you know, that don't look all... I can see a foot coming through there. Well, I just... Okay, so that's... You, I just... I just, I meant to bring you into this because it, well, you'll be in the meeting with me. And But it's... <laughs> Scafidi says it's not going out over the air, but it is... It is. I, I went in and asked Hondo. I said, are, are you hearing that in here? And he says, yes. <laughs> so it's... <laughs> okay, but, but I will tell you, in the middle of July, I'm going to like the the fact that we have air conditioning that's so maybe true. just listening to all this banging over the last two and a half hours that's been okay <clears throat> all right i'm gonna we, do my next one from the newsroom <laughs> yeah, yes. oh yeah bail bail on me matt and air okay that's it or if you do find one of those hard hats just kind of bring them all in because i'm just waiting for stuff that starts like falling down from the ceiling and all um but again steve says it's not going out over the air so that is the more important thing but if you hear a loud thump and then all of a sudden there's dead air that means it's just something that's been going on right above me has gone through the ceiling and landed on me and that's okay i'll we, we got workers comp it'll be all right okay let's uh We've got the Week in Review coming up at 11.35. Susie Falk and Tracy Johnson back. We're going to be talking about a number of things, including the decision yesterday by Donald Trump to launch uh, Tomahawk missiles at a particular target in Syria. All right. For that, here is a story. Um, yesterday, the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office issued charges against a 22-year-old Milwaukee woman. She is facing Felony child neglect charges. Here's what happens. Um, The woman says that she bought a handgun, purchased a handgun for protection, and she kept it in her purse. I do not know whether she's a concealed carry permit holder or not, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter. So she buys a gun, handgun. She has it in her purse. Her story is that when she came home last Saturday night, she put the perch, purse on a couch pillow and fell asleep on the couch with her son and his two siblings, ages two and three. So mom has a gun in her purse. Mom comes home, puts the purse on the couch, lays down, and falls asleep with these young children on the couch as well. She wakes up Sunday morning with the children still in the living room, and she moves her purse 
to the floor as she walked to the bathroom. While she was in the bathroom, she says she hears a gunshot. She runs back to the living room and sees her four-year-old son bleeding from his hand. Her gun was in her purse, but the top of the contents as if it was dropped there according to on on top of the contents as if it was dropped there according to the complaint she takes her son to children's hospital where staff examines the wound to his right index finger the child's finger might have to be amputated uh, the shooting occurred just after 1 p.m. on Sunday in the 4900 block of North 60th Street she has now been charged with felony child endangerment so essentially putting this together i think the allegations are she has a gun in her purse she leaves her purse um, unattended while she goes to the bathroom. Four-year-old gets gets access to the purse, gets access to the gun, and, and shoots his finger off. She's now been charged with a felony. She's 22 years old, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, this, this is obviously a horrible situation. It could have been worse of course because what could have happened is the kid could have used the gun and shot himself or shot you know one of his other kids one of his his siblings so i mean that this has the as bad as this is he's apparently you know his finger is going to have to be amputated that's a horrible thing but this isn't a case at least as far as i can tell where mom was drunk or something like that she just allowed the child to have access to her purse while it had a gun in it i am curious do you believe Mom should be charged with a felony under these circumstances. 414-799-1620, that is the Accurate Mortgage uh, Talk and Text Line. I will tell you where I come down, and we will discuss next. Should mom be charged with a felony? Do you put mom in prison for this situation? She's 22 years old. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1115. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1118, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Um, let's see. How do you get the likes of, uh, uh, what? Did, how did he become the only governor in American history to win a recall election? What was it like to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump on a presidential debate platform? Governor Scott Walker sits down with me less than in less than two weeks, and you can be there to see it all live. It is Insight 2017. It's at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee on Wednesday night, April 19th. Tickets available now by going online at WTMJ. Com. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, District Attorney's Office has just issued charges against a 22-year-old woman. Um, her story is she's got a gun in her purse. Um, it is loaded. She carries it for protection. She comes home on Saturday night. She falls asleep on the couch with the purse on the couch. She wakes up. She goes into the bathroom, but she leaves the purse, you know, in an area where her four, three, and two-year-old kids are. The four-year-old gets it, and he shoots off his right index finger. All right. Should she be charged with a felony? 414-799-1620. Let's see. Dan on our text line says, it's highly unlikely she was a concealed carry permit holder. If she were, it would be featured prominently in the news stories. Yes, I think that that's probably a fair thing. But for our purposes, 
for the purpose of these charges, it doesn't matter whether she was a concealed carry permit holder or not. The question is, is it felony child neglect to leave a loaded firearm in the immediate access of small children? And, you know, this is one where you look at it like that. I think it kind of becomes a a no-brainer. And the answer is, of course, she needs to be charged. Now, I don't know what you ultimately do in a case like this. I mean, I don't know under these circumstances if this is something that you, you know, you you send the woman to prison for any length of time. I mean, I, I don't know about that. The disposition of the matter is one thing. But as far as whether or not this is, is child neglect, yes. I mean, there, there is no question in my mind that that is the case. If you are going to be a firearm owner, whether, and again, let's put aside whether she's legally got a concealed carry permit or not, but I don't care whether the gun is in her purse. I don't care whether the gun is in a nightstand. I don't care whether the gun is in a, a drawer in the coffee table in the living room or whatever. You you cannot, if you've got children around, you cannot allow the children to have unfettered access to the gun. You, you've got to have the gun locked up somewhere. You've got to have the gun out of reach. Leaving a loaded gun in your purse and leaving your purse on the living room floor where your four and three and two year old kids are is a recipe for disaster. And like I was saying earlier, the miracle about this, I mean, the, the silver lining of this story is that nobody's dead. I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing that the child apparently shot his index finger off and that's very bad, but, but it could have been so much worse. And yes, I mean, as somebody who values the second amendment and believes that people should have the right as long as it's exercised responsibly, to carry firearms and to use them to protect themselves and certainly have firearms around the house. If you've got kids around, you've got to, got to, got to make sure that you take, whether it's trigger guards or gun safes or whatever, you've got to make sure that you keep the kids from getting access to it. Jay in DeForest. Jay, you're on 620 WTMJ. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm talking to Rush Limbaugh, but nigga dittos. But anyway, (laughs) um... I, I agree with everything you said. I would say that it should be a felony. She shouldn't go to jail, but as a felony, she won't be able to own a gun again, which right. is right exactly where she should be. She should use a mace if she wants protection because it's obvious she's not a gun owner. Or he's a good gun owner. So right, because, I mean, fun. any responsible gun owner, Jay, would recognize that you, you you cannot leave firearms lying around, loaded firearms regardless, much less loaded firearms, lying around where a four-year-old can get access to them. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I now have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, and, ever, and it didn't even matter. My guns are always locked up and unloaded. So it, it's just unbelievable somebody wouldn't would think and do something like that and allow somebody to get damn good scares well, it, it did. It, again, it does. And look, and I, I don't know. I'm not suggesting I don't know anything about this lady. I, I don't I'm not suggesting she's necessarily a bad mom in and of it as a, as moms go. I don't know anything about that. But I do know that there is an awesome responsibility that comes with owning a firearm. I mean, I've told the story. There was like a two or three year period where I back when I was in the U.S. attorney's office, I, I, I carried a gun. This is before, you know, concealed carry. So you had to go through a different sort of procedure for me to legally do it. But I was always, always, always mindful, you know, when I had that firearm with me. It is an awesome responsibility. I was also extremely mindful and am to this day about, you know, where where in my home that firearm is. And, you know, I don't, I don't have kids. I don't have children around the house. But at the same time, you, you, don't want, you don't want people to be able to get access to that because 
this is the type of thing that can happen if you allow that to happen. So it's an unfortunate situation, but from the perspective of the DA's office, I think they did absolutely the right thing in bringing charges. The whole factor of how you handle this, what do you do? Do you put her in jail? Um, do you put her on probation? I don't know. But you're also right, Jay, that if she's convicted of this, she will then be a felon, and she will not be allowed to possess a firearm moving forward. And you know what? Under the circumstances, I think at the very least, that strikes me as being a good thing. Coming up next, the long knives are out. Will he survive? Stick around. It's 1124. It's 1126. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. As we announced earlier this week, we've rolled out our Follow the Brewers promotion. Each day we have a daily winner. This week, each daily winner got a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers play the Cardinals at Miller Park. On Friday, we select one of our daily winners randomly, and they get an opportunity to follow the Brewers. This week, it is a trip to Pittsburgh. Let's see how this turned out. Come see what's brewing. This is Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. It's Doug Russell from WTMJ. Hi. How are you? Hi, Doug. I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I got a question for you. Have you been to uh, PNC Ballpark in uh, Pittsburgh yet? I have not. Which... I would love to go. Am I the winner of the Friday? You are indeed our winner of Jeff Wagner's I Follow am. the Brewers, sponsored oh by gosh. West Bend the Silver Lining, Noodles and Company, and 620 WTMJ. That's awesome. Thank you. You're very welcome. So uh, it's the trip is on May 6th, so we've got airfare, a couple of nights hotel, tickets to the game, and everything. Awesome. Thank you very much. It is that simple. Our first weekly grand prize winner. Keep listening. We're going to be running this promotion for at least a few more weeks. 9-10 every day approximately. Sometimes it's 908 or sometimes it's 909. Sometimes it's 911 or 912, but right around that area. Be listening. If you are the correct caller, you will win a four-pack of tickets to see the Brewers at Miller Park designated series. And then um, we've got different locations for the grand prize winner every week. So I'm not sure where it is next week. It's not Pittsburgh, but somewhere else. But we're going to send you an opportunity to follow Chicago next week. Okay. See the Cubs. Very cool. So that's the winner next week. But be listening. What happens is we qualify somebody each day. They get the four pack of tickets. And then on Friday, we randomly select one of the daily winners. And you just heard it's that simple. All you have to do is follow the Brewers, tune in approximately 9, 10 to my show every day, and you got a chance to take a trip. Wouldn't that be fun? All right. I said the long knives are out. Um, new report out today. And there's been these reports before, but this one suggests that um, Reince Priebus, who is the chief of staff for Donald Trump, and if you want to talk about – if you want to talk about what's got to be a thankless job, being the chief of staff for, for Donald Trump, I, I was reading reports a few weeks ago and some of the people were saying, well, he, you know, Priebus, he, he, he's micromanaging things. You know, he's in all these meetings. Well, my response was he's got to be on all these meetings because you don't know what the heck is going to happen next. And if you're the chief of staff, you are probably running around saying, oh, my gosh, I got to stop this from happening or that from happening. Anyhow, the report out this morning is um, Another one from a news site saying the president is considering a broad shakeup of his White House staff. You know, this is we're less than 100 days, right? That could include include the replacement of White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus and the departure of Steve, Chief Strategist Steve Bannon. Bannon, of course, was the guy from Breitbart News who apparently is very upset that he was taken off the National Security Council, even though he'd only gone to one meeting. Um, there's all these different replacements names that are being circulated. I guess, first of all, I mean, I've known Reince for a number of years, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for even be willing to step up and take the job of chief of staff. Don't know how this is all going to play out. And again, 
Washington, you know, the political long knives are all, always out. And if you're the chief of staff, you're one of the, the targets of this. Um, he's gotten blamed with some of the things. Gee, we couldn't get health care reform through Congress. Like that's the chief of staff's fault and, and some of the other stuff. Candidly, I think Donald Trump is lucky to have a guy like Reince Priebus in that particular role. The bigger question for Reince Priebus is why does he want that job? But the reports are there might be an upcoming White House shakeup and Reince Priebus maybe on his way out as chief of staff. Um, <laughs> big picture, that I suspect would make Reince's life a lot easier moving forward. It's 11.34, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's that time of the week. We've got the band back together. I am the thorn between the roses. Susie Falk from Falk Group Public Relations. Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. It is the Week in Review. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Great okay. to be here. All right. Now, before we go to our, our prepared list of topics, the ones that I, I sent out to suggest, we got to talk about the really big story of the day. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers, Olivia Mund, breaking up. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's according to People Magazine. It's I mean, breaking to me. How do oh, I feel about my this? My news, too. Well, I'm imagining a bunch of women out there pretty happy. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Didn't she have a ring? <laughs> Well, that was, that she that was the report a couple a couple months ago that she had apparently. I'm I'm embarrassed that I know this. Yes, but I, yes, tell but, us yeah, more, Jeff. I, but that, that she had the, that ring, but but she denied that it was a wedding ring or something. She uh-huh. disputed that. So now, well, maybe his performance will improve. Oh, there you oh. go. Oh, there you go. And oh. he won't be able to go to so many red carpet events either, though. You know, he likes. We leave that to his brother, events. right? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, the, that, that was the big question. Well, the big question is now: Will, will Aaron want to go on the Bachelor or something? Um, or you know, who who knows? Okay, who knows? changing the format on us. That's the big now. story. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers. You know, relationship with Olivia on the rocks. We'll see. Okay, <laughs> now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Um, the, the big story I, I think of the day, nationally, internationally, is the revelation that last night, following an attack use of chemical weapons on a village in Syria earlier this week. Uh, President Trump has uh, authorized the, the bombing of, uh, of a military air base in Syria. 49, 59 cruise missiles, uh, Tomahawk missiles launched of a few deaths, but mostly damage to property. Some people say it's an act of war. Was this an appropriate response, Tracy Johnson? Well, I, I, I've spent a lot of time listening to all different sides of this, and my conclusion is that it was the appropriate response. I think, um, if anything, following up from the past administration, this was definitely one of the black eyes of the Obama administration is not dealing with the problems where, where in Syria. Where President Obama said, I'm going to draw a line in the sand, and then, Just not dealing then with Assad it. crosses over that line and we do nothing. Right? A- okay. Absolutely, and I know there's some criticism uh, of not engaging the the Congress on this decision, but Mm -hmm. because this was an illegal act and use of of chemical warfare, Mm -hmm. uh, he was within his realm to to make this call Mm -hmm. and to to bomb that that lane. So I, I think it was the right decision. Susie. I think moving forward, if you know there will be future airstrikes or any kind of strike, there's going to have to be you know Congress approving it. Um, I will talk about a bromance that has broken up. Speaking of relationships, and yeah. Pooty Poot and Donald yeah. Trump, I don't think are going to be you know right. drinking a beer anytime soon. Um, there's a lot at stake in this, and I do think it was the right move, Tracy. I agree with you. I also think that 
there's going to have to be some diplomacy now, and I think that there's going to ha- they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do in the Middle East. But he well, means business, just, right. and it, he, this, he does. He sent a message, a very clear message. Well, right, because and after he, the last time, what happened during the Obama administration is John Kerry gets together with a Russian ambassador, and they apparently come up with this plan where um, Assad will surrender all his chemical weapons. Well, that, that didn't, didn't work. work. Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what you're also seeing is that diplomacy just isn't going to work. You can't negotiate with terrorists and people who are going to strike their own innocent children and women. Mm-hmm. It just it, it it was uncalled for. And I think what President Trump did was exactly the right thing. And I, I think he's getting bipartisan support. On well, yeah, too. I also think yes. there is an irony. You're, you're right. I mean, Russia comes out and labels this as this act of, of aggression yeah. against the nation state. OK, th- this is Putin who, you know, look, look at what he's yeah. doing in the Ukraine. I mean, this this is somebody I mean, there is this irony that this is a guy who's now afraid about the aggression. I, I do think you need to be careful moving forward. I don't, yeah. I, I think Trump will be. I, and this was something that the, the, it was apparently a strategy that the Pentagon had worked out, you know, for years mm-hmm. as to how you do this. Um, I, I think, do I think you need to send boots on the ground in Syria? I think that, that's something mm-hmm. you need to be real careful. Well, there are soldiers already over there, and that was yeah. one Training, of the big yeah. concerns, well, is right. that the chemical warfare would have been yeah. used against them. So yeah. all the more reason. Yeah, and interesting, the timing, too, with China, you know, that what's taking place in Florida right now. You know, they're, they're feeling a little bit broadsided, and they're not going to say anything right now, the Chinese. But then Russia, with Rex Tillerson heading over to Russia next right. week to talk, and I think that's going to be the most important conversation in the next few weeks is what's going to happen there. I mean, I I think long term, the, the only reason Assad stays in power is because he's being propped up by Iran and Russia. And I think, I mean, long term, that, that, that's, that's the way you have to deal with it. the United States and the world. I mean, it, it is also frustrating. The U.N. should be doing this. That This shouldn't this shouldn't fall on we tried the United States. Exactly. But but they they don't. No. I mean, um, that's the, the frustrating sort of thing. But Maybe there can be some economic sanctions or something. You're going to have to put pressure on Iran and Russia mm-hmm. to stop supporting Assad. And because, work with our allies in the region, Turkey right. and, and the others, who do want to see peace. Well, know. and we've been seen as such a weak ally, I think, over the last eight yeah. years. That uh, Not that you need to bring out your big gun and uh, you know bomb mm-hmm. somebody, but... We haven't used our military strength. We've instead led from behind, which I think is such a, a negative way to lead in this global economy, and especially when there's so much tension in the Middle well, East. Well, what Assad did was just horrifying. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, and I think you're right. I mean, <laughs> across it. the board, you're having, I, I think most people, Republicans, Democrats, I think most people realize that something had to be done, and this was a measured mm-hmm. response to it. Okay, mm-hmm. topic number two mm-hmm. the Senate goes nuclear. But the sun came up. I mean, after you know, after after all sorts of after all sorts of debate and gnashing of teeth, um, for the first time in history, Democrats were prepared to filibuster the nomination of a Supreme Court yeah. justice. So, following up on what Harry Reid did when Democrats controlled the Senate in 2013, yesterday the Republicans changed the rules um, so a straight up or down vote would get a justice confirmed. So today there was a vote. It was 54-45. Interestingly, three Democrats mm-hmm. joining 51 mm-hmm. Republicans. One Republican is recovering from, like, back surgery or something. But Neil Gorsuch now goes to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's talk, first of all, about th- this nuclear option, the fact that we've done away with the filibuster. Is this some terrible blow to, you know, America and the democratic process? Susie. 
Well, you may be surprised, Jeff, but I vote typically Democrat. I know you're shocked by this, but anyhow, I, you know what? I am so upset with both parties right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm devastated that we are in this point at this point. Um, I think it is a problem to do away with the filibuster. I think, you know, obviously the Democrats sort of set us up for this. The Republicans, so the Republican, they counteract. They get away right. with, you know, the filibuster is gone when it comes to judges and justices. Mm-hmm. Okay, where I worry is in legislation. And I think that the, the Senate serves a purpose in that it moves slower. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be consensus building. It's supposed to um, have parties working together for the well-being of the country because we are made up of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And I'm afraid that what's going to happen with legislation is it's going to become very partisan. And 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 I think it's afraid that it will become partisan. Well, it's going to be dictated by one party or the other what gets passed. And like I don't it is think. Now. I don't think that that's going to work very well in for the future of our country. If you read Senator Graham's remarks, he gave a 3,000-word speech on the floor yesterday, he, and he said we had to do it, of course. This is a very sad day. It's a but, very disturbing day. You see, Tracy, I, I don't, I, see, I, I listen to this. The more I've been thinking about this, I, I guess I don't see what the big deal of this is. To me, this is the tyranny of the minority. Elections matter. And I, I mean, whether it's Republicans that are in control or Democrats that are in control, and the idea that you could have a minority party, 41 people, blocking legislation that is being pushed by a president and a majority of senators and the House of Representatives. Maybe there was a role for the filibuster 30, 40, 50 years ago. But I, I candidly... I, I'm sorry gone. to see it disappear. Oh, yeah. I, it should have been gone a long time ago because I, I, I have not done a ton of research on the result of a filibuster. But usually, all it does is it, it, it blocks something from happening. It blocks any communication. It blocks any negotiation. There's really no purpose because, as you said, Susie, it's so partisan now. The filibuster, all, all it does is give people a tool to be more or, or, partisan, or it makes what, your your. Politicians to, have to work harder. No, it doesn't. No, to it, it, it allows people to posture. The, the, the well, beauty think, of our country is it's it's based on oh, democracy and debate. But let's and building that consensus. Stuff out. But, but, but democracy is majority too, rule. I mean, okay, well, okay, easy majority. Okay, well, sure. well, but, but me, I'm Ms. Democrat. I mean, the, one of the reasons that civil rights legislation was blocked for decades mm-hmm. was because. Of a of a block of of de- of Democrats and some Republicans in the U.S. Senate who used the threat of the filibuster to stop all the civil rights legislation from from coming on. I mean, I I guess I just think elections have consequences, and the the, the if we're going to get stuff done, you know, people who win elections have the right to get stuff done, and then if the public doesn't like what people have done, then you vote them out. Lord knows we've seen that happen a lot. Okay, got to take a quick break. When we come back, um, road building and a wheel tax, two topics that I know are near and dear to the hearts of both my guests, particularly Ms. Johnson. Stick around. It's the Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. It's 1144, News Radio 620, WTMJ. It's 1148, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, The Week in Review, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. Yes, we've upgraded the bumper music. It's Songs of My Life. It's you know, Leonard Skinner. Can't go wrong with Skinner here. Um, okay, topic number three. Let, let's talk about the expansion plans. I-94, 
expanding the freeway from the Marquette interchange, essentially out to the zoo interchange, sort of been put on hold. What the governor said is, look, there's all this litigation about this. I don't want to fight these battles, so we're going to put this on hold. This week, a number of business leaders said, wait a minute, you know, it's important to, it's important to keep this going. Tracy Johnson. Well, and, and really the I-94 funding and the expansion for I-94 is really part of a, a comprehensive plan, uh, the solution for transportation funding. I think it's just one piece of the statewide transportation issue that we have, which is the fact that we don't have enough funding for transportation and infrastructure. And, and the reason that our organization is involved with this is because uh, of the economic impact and what a driver that infrastructure is and specifically highways are for uh, commercial real estate so for let's businesses. talk about th- th- let's talk about and I, I, I agree with you by the yeah. way but okay so let's talk about this particular stretch of yes. road you've got a lot of the anti-car people who oppose it mayor's uh, not happy with it um is, is it important yes um, Because here's the deal. If you don't fund improvements for that stretch of road, you're really going to create this this choke point for all of the other projects and all of the other roads that are being funded. Redo the zoo interchange, redo the Marquette interchange so more cars get through there. But if you still got the old. You've got problems. You've got problems. If you've got something like 300,000 employees within five miles of that exchange, you've got tons of uh, of property and real estate and businesses. You talk about Miller Coors, Marquette. You've got a lot of businesses who are affected by that aging road. And if you don't fund it now, you mm-hmm. are going to pay way more for those those. Uh, so your advice to the governor the would be, let's, let's go ahead, blast ahead. I don't know if there's a we'll lawsuit that's been filed or that's been threatened, but just, just go ahead and keep keep it on track. Keep it on the table. At least keep working on the project, because right now what they're saying is is we're not going to enumerate funding to keep looking at the, at the improvements for this road. And then we lose out on, on f- some of the federal funding that's been kind of earmarked for, the, for that project. And so you're going to be starting from square one. So my advice would be to keep it as part of a comprehensive transportation solution going Susie forward. Falk. Go, Tracy, go. I <laughs> wholeheartedly endorse what you're saying. I just came from a couple weeks in Florida and I must say the, the roads down there are spectacular and it encourages people to go see things experience the wonderful tourism sites that Florida has to offer you know my parents are seniors down there they're retired they're, they're still driving and they they love the roads because they're safe you know they're easy to navigate they're, they're, they're relatively new I understand it's Florida you know we don't have a lot of salting that goes mm-hmm. on in Florida but it does encourage tourism and it does inc- you know, encourage people to go see sites and Milwaukee is a gem it's an economic driver in the state. Um, there are lots of businesses that are really upset by how this is going to impact them mm-hmm. if we don't get that road in better shape. It's 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 horrible to drive on that okay, stretch. Th- then re- related to that, um, on Tuesday there yeah. was we had an election. There was an advisory referendum on Chris Abley, the county executive, originally suggested a sixty dollar Milwaukee County wheel tax. The county board did thirty bucks. The referendum said, should we add another 30 bucks to it? It went down in flames. 72% of people voting no. Um, Chris Abley, well, it's still unclear as to whether he's going to push that or not. He says, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I like the way the question was worded. Okay. Tracy, I know, you know, you, you're kind of taxes when it comes to transportation. Do we double the wheel tax? Well, uh, short answer, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I think the short answer is no. Um, but But I think what it addresses is the bigger issue that the county is forced to figure out a way to 
pay for things that, and they don't have any control over how they generate revenue. And right now they're in a very sticky situation with, with transit and the fact that they're losing money on transit. A lot of it has to do with the go passes that, that right. are not funding mm-hmm. themselves. Um, right. you know, and there's a need for increased transit, at least well, maybe we should tear up Wisconsin Avenue and Blue Mound Road uh, and put in a the BRT, a, 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 a yes, a, a rapid bus transit thing that's going to knock six minutes off. I'm just saying, Susie Falk. Okay, okay, you're the PR well, guy. The yeah. county board comes to you, PR uh-huh. gal, PR, and says. Gee, uh, if this went down 72% of the voters. It's not looking good, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, you know, Chris Abley is a fighter, and, and he's a good politician, and I think that he's got his work cut out for him, and I think he's up for the challenge. Mm-hmm. I think he is going to fight for this. I think, you know, if I were him, I would keep looking at different cities where they do have wheel taxes, and, and they are charging a lot more than Milwaukee, and do the, the comparison and say, you know, this is very important. It's so important and, on so many but levels. the county has no way to generate and, revenue. And, and, okay, here, here's the Here's the bottom line politically. Any any county supervisor that votes for adding doubling the wheel tax from thirty to sixty dollars, there, there's one word. They just can't do it. Recall. Yeah. All right, we're back with our Right Stuff Awards. It's eleven fifty three. Eleven fifty six. It's the Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. Our Right Stuff Awards. Ms. Falk. Yeah. Uh, former Governor Martin Schreiber wins my award. He's um, on a book tour. He's got a book out, which is called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. His story is so incredibly touching. He has um, watched his wife deteriorate in recent years. I, I bumped into him at a television station, and he, he is just so poignant and so so thoughtful about what it's like to be a caregiver and the importance of providing for those we love. Um, he has a saying, which I, I adore, and he in the book he talks about, rather than worrying about the storm to pass, try to learn how to dance in the rain. And for anyone who has ever cared for someone who's had dementia, this is so very true. So go buy the book. Uh, you can find more about it at mytwoelanes.com, and the proceeds go to support Alzheimer's caregiver programs. Tracy Johnson. All right. My Right Stuff Award goes to all of the, path, uh, the finalists for the Mandy Award. The Mandy Awards are run by an organization called LISC, um, which focuses on underserved community uh, central city neighborhoods. And some of those finalists include the Johnson Park Revitalization in Lindsay Heights, the Journey House Community Garden, and there's a bunch more um, on their website. But they get my Right Stuff Award because they recognize all these wonderful projects going on in our city. And my Right Stuff Award winner, I think this is the first time, but it's President Donald Trump. Um He has inherited a lot of different messes, including the whole Syria situation. And I think what he did yesterday, while you never like to take action where you're sending Tomahawk missiles in, I think yesterday's strike that he ordered against the airbase in Syria was a measured and appropriate response to the brutal tactics that were engaged in by the head of the Syrian regime. I understand that in some cases it People would look at it and say, okay, maybe this makes it a more dangerous world. But the truth is, not doing anything, allowing these tyrants and these bullies to engage in the behavior they do, you, that does not work. And so, at least now, President Trump has sent a message out there that when he says, hey, you know, you're not going to be able to do this, he is serious. I don't think this is going to be a huge issue moving forward. I don't think, you know, Russia and Iran are going to get too upset, despite what they say now about this. And Donald Trump is my right 
Stuff Award winner for doing something that, candidly, I think should have happened several years ago. Okay, we are out of time. We're back next Friday at 1130. We do this again. I am back 830 on Monday morning. It looks like it's going to be a great weekend, so you have yourself a great weekend. I will talk to you Monday. It's 1159. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.